Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? Are you looking for a good holiday gift for the botany lover in your life? Well, consider buying a copy of my book, In Defense of Plants, an exploration into the wonder of plants, some of our customizable merch, or our stickers. They make great stocking stuffers or just gifts in general for the botany nut in your life, and it helps keep this show up and running. I couldn't be doing it without everyone that supports the show financially. So thank you to everyone that's done it and consider doing it if you haven't. But today is a very special episode because it's a group of trees that I've been meaning to tackle on this podcast for quite some time and I found the perfect person to do it. We are talking about the hawthorns, the genus Critigus. And if you grew up trying to identify plants, you picked up, say, a Peterson's Guide, you flip to the hawthorn section, you go oh, there's not really a treatment in here. They just kind of say, well, they're confusing. And here's some general leaf shapes, but good luck. And then you're just kind of set adrift in a sea of botanical confusion. Well, that did not dissuade botanist Ron Lance from taking a deep dive into this genus and truly helping us understand the genus Critigus a lot better and in far more detail. As you're going to hear, Ron got bitten by the bug early and he hasn't looked back since and he has made major contributions to our understanding of this genus Ron is the kind of botanist I absolutely love talking with. He's got so many great insights and context to put plants in their place, and he's a true believer of to know a plant, you got to grow that plant. But I don't want to steal any more of his thunder. Let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Ron Lance. I hope you enjoy. All right, Ron Lance, it is so exciting to have you on the show today. I'm really pumped to talk to you about Hawthorns. But first, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Well, my name is Ron Lance. I'm kind of an independent researcher at the moment. In the past, I've had roles in horticulture and forestry and botany in uh, environmental education. Right now, I've been managing as employee of the North American Land Trust, which are headquartered up in Pennsylvania. I work in North Carolina at an Appalachian Mountain private property tract as a land caretaker, uh, about 3,000 acres. I've been doing that for the last 10 years. And on the side, I do my own botany research and things. I'm affiliated with several efforts in the past with the Arkansas Natural Heritage, with various universities, um, the Hawthorne work that I've kind of specialized in the last 30 years has had several publications affiliated with it. Right now I'm wrapped up in an oak research study um, on the southern species of oak. But uh, anyway, I may be retired another year or two and nice. I'll still take a right. botany, personal independent researcher project. Excellent. Where did this all really start for you? I mean, were plants always kind of on your radar, or is it something you kind of fell into on accident or, or through work? Yeah, uh, growing up, I was more into wildlife, you know, animals. And uh, I've actually got a degree, associate degree in wildlife management from hmm. a local community college. But they installed me as a, a lab technician to help teach courses in zoology and botany and forestry. And uh, I really got my interest in plants in 11th grade in high school when we had forestry in high school, which at the time, like most high school students, I didn't know what forestry was, but it sounded neat, so I took it. And that started me on down the road being interested in trees specific, specifically and plants in general. And I, it just carried on from there. And when I graduated and worked at the college, I kind of concentrated more on the plant aspect of things. and. Over the years, I've operated nurseries, state nurseries, and private, kept in private nurseries, have my own nursery. Uh, so I've been into plants more probably since high school than, than I have animals. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's excellent. What a track record. Uh, way to get your hands dirty in a lot of different avenues of botanical work. But, you know, when, when, when people start getting into plants, plant identification, field botany, that sort of stuff, you kind of hear about different groups of plants that are more or less intimidating. And I think sedges often top the list. But mm -hmm. I, I think when you really start to 
get into it. Uh, Hawthorns might trump sedges in terms of uh, the challenge they present. So where did the Hawthorn bug really bite you? Yeah, that kind of got started. I had this scheme back in the early 80s. This is predated, you know, the Internet and all that. There weren't that many photographic manuals on plants that were that complete. So I had in mind I was going to make my own photographic manual of all the woody plants that grow in the southeastern United States. So I started, I took out the Nikon SLR camera and the Kodachrome and Xchrome film, and I was taking slides of trying to take pictures of every woody plant, every shrub, tree, species, vine that was native in southeast. That went on from 85. Well, I'm still taking pictures. I've actually never quit. But uh, the idea of producing a published book with all these photographs um, got the need started to, you know, to learn and find out where these things grow and plus the, the escaped exotics. And, and the Hawthorns were always the group that there was never agreement on how many species there were and what was a species and what wasn't and where they grew. So partly an effort to kind of sort these things out for my own conclusion, my own book idea, got to realizing that no one else is working on these plants and and all the professors, most universities, all these kind of threw up their hands saying, oh, it's an impossible group. They're all hybrids. You can't, they can't be understood. It kind of got me on the track of, well, why not? You know, you just, you just have to spend time looking at things to figure them out. If you don't want to look at them, of course, they're not going to be mm. discernible. Um, so I, gradually, I got to get into them a little bit because of this book. But as I went deeper into them, I learned there was one man in the United States, um, Dr. James B. Phipps, the University of Western Ontario up in Canada. He was kind of considered the Hawthorne specialist at the time. And uh, so he and I kind of ganged up in the southeast, and we trips around collecting specimens across the south, looking for rare species and stuff. And since then, he's published a lot of papers, and he published The Floor of North America, uh, treatment on Critigus, and we both collaborated on several you know, papers together and always changing ideas. Dr. Phipps is retired now. Uh, I'm still hacking at it, you know, but the Critigus being such a difficult group and no one else willing to take them on, I said, well, I'll try to do as much as I can to try to figure them out. But my role in that was a little bit hindered in that I was strictly in the southeastern part of the United States. I didn't have the luxury of academic connections, so I couldn't travel to the northwest, up to northeast. Dr. Phipps kind of handled the northern United States and Canada, and I kind of concentrated just on the southeast. Consequently, 2014, it all came to a head when the book, Paul's book, which I completed in 2014, strictly on the southeastern Taxa, close to 200 different taxa there. And I'm still doing annotations for herbaria in different universities and uh, looking for these species everywhere I go still. Even though the pictures have been taken, there still is no book on the floor of the southeast since I had that idea. The Internet's come along. There's photographs galore everywhere you can look on the Internet. Not all 100% correct, of course, yeah. but I find a picture of a plant, just about any species now on the Internet. Which uh, I say, well, maybe I'll just write the book and put it on the thumb drive and put all these pictures on there, and I still look at it. So <laughs> instead of a printed book, so maybe there'll be a thumb drive or some database. <laughs> That's a fun idea. I like that. But I can see why this would take a curious mind to the nth degree. I mean... I am enamored by these trees, but at the same time, as soon as you start to dig in a little bit, you get very confused very quickly. And I, I've heard a wild range of estimates and numbers. I think the last time I had looked at it in a serious way up until very recently, it had said there are 2,000 species and no one knows where they're from or where they were originally native. But I, I wanted to talk to you today because you seem to have a more sensible, uh, digestible take on this genus. But 
when you think of a hawthorn, when we say hawthorn, some people might get an image in their head. Many more will not. These are relatively small trees. Uh, what family are they in and what is sort of the, the Critigus distribution range for the genus? Yes, well, Critigus is uh, in the rose family. They resemble a lot of other rosaceous plants and having you know, white flowers, usually all white and white five petals, kind of look like an apple flower. Have a little fruit, looks like a miniature apple. It, uh, technically, you could call it a poem, same as an apple, because there's a hypanthium that surrounds the, the actual fruit, part of the flower. Um, the hawthorns are distributed worldwide, but strictly uh, in the northern hemisphere. And they're all, there are no true tropical species. They're all temperate species plants. In other words, they go through the four seasons. Uh, the abundant species, the abundance of them, concentrated primarily in North America, in in uh, Asia and Western Europe. So we have in the United States probably the most species named of anywhere in the world. There's probably close to 1,700 names of Critigus has been invented worldwide. And in North America alone, there's almost 1,300 names have been invented. And this is, covers a genus of plants that, I mean, again, no one really knows for sure until some genetic studies have been done. Uh, they may number 100 species or 200 species or 500 worldwide. That argument still exists. I mean, some people are just reluctant to accept that some of these minor variations to them, what looks minor of hawthorns are actually deserve species status or not. Uh, I found throughout my years of observation growing these things in the nursery and observing them in the field, and we have done some genetic analysis on some species uh, that they're not all hybrids. You know, yeah, they can be. I mean, if you look, if you go back far enough, of course, you can find just a few ancestral critigus probably in the fossil record, but. For the most part, they've undergone rapid development in the last few centuries. In about 200 years ago, there seemed to be an abundance of them in North America. And uh, there's very little mention of them from Native Americans. But all along about the late 1800s, a few botanists in North America kind of discovered these plants and started naming everyone that looked different. As a consequence of that, we have a lot of, almost an unwieldy number of names to deal with. Not all of them are probably species equivalents. You know, some are obviously hybrid origin. Some have disappeared. A lot of them have disappeared because they were only known from a few plants in one place. And of course, as you know, the landscape has changed drastically in the last hundred years, you know, and uh, grown up and these plants have disappeared. We know a lot of them just from old herbarium specimens. They're over 100 years old now. They only exist as a dried specimen in the herbarium. Wow. But worldwide, wow. these plants are are known easily by the genus. I mean, there's no mistaking a hawthorn. The species, yes, but a genus, they're very distinct. You know, they do have thorns, true thorns on the twigs, little five-petal flowers, uh, white, while the characteristic small cones, most of the fruits are less than an inch diameter. A few of the Chinese and Mexican species have large fruits up to two inch, but for the most part, they're all small fruited uh, members of the rose family. Thorny, they typically, a few of them are used ornamentally because of their spring flowers. Some are used as small fruits, like the mayhaws are grown in the south for making jelly. Mm. Chinese grow a few large fruited things like Panatifida. The Mexican hawthorn is largest, uses a food source. But for the most part, the vast majority of these plants are pretty much ignored. They're just forest understory plants with plants of disturbed places, early successional environments. And uh, they don't get much press. The nursery trade virtually uses just a handful of species. But they're a component of the temperate forest, and they're pretty widespread across, again, the northern hemisphere. Certainly. Uh, I mean, I can tell you most of the botanists I know have largely written them off. It's kind of that whole 
you just see one, you go, eh, it's a Hawthorne. I'm not going to break my back trying to figure out which one. But I will say one of the most amazing anecdotes I have about being around a Hawthorne is I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a tree that when in bloom had more attention from bees on it. I mean, the tree <clears throat> sounded like a power line right away. It was just humming. Yeah phenomenal and, and important parts of the ecology as a result of that kind of wildlife value oh yeah that's one of their unsung virtues you might say is uh, they may not be that valuable for humans as far as an ornamental standpoint and they have thorns so the nurserymen don't like to plant them <laughs> i remember seeing once a notation about hawthorn in a prominent horticultural guide it's the man recommended you should never plant a hawthorn in your yard because it's dangerous for small children. That well, you know, as a small child, I grew up with these things, and yeah, they do sticky if you get close, but that's hardly a reason to, yeah, ignore them just because they have thorns. What about roses? You know, roses have right. thorns. <laughs> um, but yes, the uh, the best, I guess, argument for promoting their establishment or conservation is that they are are used by a lot of different native insects and animals. Uh, the bees and, well, beetles principally use the pollen and the nectar. And yes, when they're in full bloom and there's a good bloom year, the nectar and pollen is fed on in huge numbers of insects. And of course, that attracts birds to come eat the insects. And also, they're prime nesting habitat for birds, songbirds, because of the thorns. Uh, they're excellent escape cover, nesting cover. If you have a grove of hawthorns, usually you'll see a bird nest in it during the winter because the bird was in there in the summer hiding with its juveniles or other bird predators like red-shouldered hawks and cats and weasels, whatever, cannot get to the nest when it's surrounded by thorns. And sometimes I've seen some nests and some hawthorns that it's amazing that the bird can even get in there without putting his own eye out with all these thorns bristling everywhere. So they're very important bird habitat and insect uh, for insect ecology. Uh, the fruits are kind of low in sugar and they're low in fat. So they're not a high energy source that's really a target for any particular species of animal like birds or mammals. You know, they do eat them some, but they're because they're a little bit low in sugar and fat. Uh, they're not fed upon in the numbers people think they should be because they're red and they're showy and they're plentiful. If they well, can't wait for the birds to come eat them. Sometimes they just fall off from the ground. I've, I heard a, a flock of wax wings or robins may come by and take them, but but they're not a highly favored food quality item. But they are fed upon by mammals. Strictly the larger soft ones are fed upon by mammals a little bit. They have some sugar, but their main attribute. Not is that be the showy fruit, the showy flowers for people. They're a small size, you know, they're either small trees or shrubs, so they fit in the landscape very well without taking up a lot of room. They give benefits for songbirds and like insects. So, as far as the natural component of the environment, they do, you know, they are productive, they do have a use. Uh, you don't have to have a name on them to grow them in the yard and appreciate them. The birds don't care what the plants are called. They utilize them regardless. But, uh, people who buy them in the nurseries, sometimes they're only given a choice of three or four species. But there's actually some very good native species that just are not grown, just aren't available in the trade, because partly because of the nomenclature, the name problem. You know, nurseman have difficulty telling them apart when they're seedlings, just like you know, some of the botanists when they're mature. So, which is really unfortunate because these plants could have a lot more wide use and uh, could really benefit as screens and, and shelters and belts and such of that sort. Certainly never met a single hawthorn that even if, like you said, I didn't know what it was, I didn't enjoy its company. I didn't admire it when in bloom or some of them have really nice bark or really interesting leaf forms. But that brings up this question of the difficulty surrounding trying to understand what an individual is, how many species there are. Is, is this a group that's just really plastic or prone to hybridizing? I mean, what is it about the Hawthorns that makes them so difficult? And from there, what features do you really need to have any level of certainty in your identification abilities? 
Yes, the identification of Hawthorne's seems insurmountable as a task, but actually it's not. It just takes some observational skills that you have to realize what uh, they're identified by leaf shape, flower, and fruit structures primarily, and then sometimes the thorn size, sometimes the bark, sometimes even the growth habit. But the leaf shape is tra the traditional method of identifying plants anyway, trees and shrubs. The hawthorns are kind of in, you can kind of segregate them into different leaf-shaped groups, which is the way I do when I prepare hawthorn keys and oh my, and the others. There's the group that have somewhat triangular leaves, the leaves are broadest near the base and they taper to the tip, uh, said to be deltoid or deltate. And then there are the group that have leaves wider toward the tip, narrowing to the base. That's what's called obovate leaves, you know, opposite of ovate egg shape and then there's a group with elliptic leaves but leaf shape is is one way of segregating these plants uh in the groups of identification and the uh the aspect of what makes a species is is <laughs> that is a good question with critigus because there there are a few diploid species of critigus just a few what we mean by diploid is that the, the normal set of chromosomes in most plants called diploid. When they undergo meiosis, the, the cell is divided into two haploid cells, and the male gamete joins with the female gamete. You know, both being haploid, they produce a new diploid. That's the normal way of reproduction in, in animals, for sure. Plants don't always follow that rule. They're <laughs> polyploid plants. Uh, we don't have polyploid animals without some problems coming up, but Polyploid plants are, are numerous, and in hawthorns, the majority of the what we call species are actually polyploid, with a few diploids. So the scheme is that the diploids may represent the oldest beginnings of the hawthorn group, and as they cross one together, you, sometimes you have an unequal cell division, uh, whereas you end up with a diploid cell with an crossing the other haploid, you end up with a triploid, three sets of chromosomes. And then there's a tetrapod, it has four sets. These plants have kind of a reticulate method of regeneration, uh, or excuse me, reproduction, in that the sex cells aren't always equally divided. So you can end up with polyploid plants being formed from diploids crossing with another polyploid, or sometimes, you know, strange things are happening in the reproductive ecology. We also have they reproduce by what's called apomixis, which is actual, it's actually a cloning of plant through its own seed. It doesn't exchange gametes. The male gamete or pollen can land on the female flower and initiate what you think is normal pollination, but the male gamete never reaches the egg nucleus, and it grows from the mother plant into a new plant, and it's the exact duplicate of the mother because it doesn't inherit any male gamete. That process is called apomixis, where seed are formed vegetatively from the mother plant without benefit of gamete change. So you've got apomictic hawthorns, you've got polyploids that have a reticulate method of sexual reproduction going on, and some hawthorns, so-called species, may have both going on at the same time. So, of course, this has given rise to all kind of speculation on, oh, we can't call them species because they don't follow the rules. Well, plants didn't invent these rules. They've been doing this on their own for longer than we even recognize. We invent rules. Nature doesn't just follow them automatically. <laughs> so these plants have undergone a lot of different, uh, you might say, mutations and a lot of different types of uh, reproduction methods. It doesn't make them impossible to understand and we should throw our hands up and ignore them all they are actually developing uh like i said they made rapid development in the years following large-scale land clearing when the pioneers came in and started cutting all our forests down and creating open spaces uh, that gave the hawthorns a lot more habitat to develop cleared bright sunshine didn't have that much before in old growth forest, so of course they proliferated, and certainly some got their beginnings as hybrid events using this reticulate reproductive strategy that they have. 
And along comes some of our botanists, you know, about 50 or more years later and discovers all these new plants that don't have names. Let's name them all. And, I, and then now they've all disappeared again, a lot of these. So, and some new ones have come up, actually, too. So what do you do with these things? Or species? Um, generally, I recommend you know, they may deserve a name when you can find a population that is distinct. In other words, don't name just one odd hawthorn that, that doesn't conform. That can't be a species. It might just be a, a local you know, variant, something that's popped up of an odd reproductive event. But if there's a generally reproduced, what appears to be reproducing population in a vicinity, that, of course, may deserve a name because these plants, whether they're apomictic and cloning themselves through seed or not, they behave like we think species should behave. They're reproducing themselves, they're staying morphologically distinct, true to type, their offspring looks just like their mother plants, you're, you're building up into a population. So those are the ones that that I tend to try to recognize as taxa, whether they're species or varieties or whatever, but they're still in the environment and they're still reproducing, you know, birds by, by the way are the disseminating agents for all hawthorns, you know, they, Birds can carry the fruits anywhere. People say, oh, well, this species has a range in West Virginia. You couldn't possibly find it in Tennessee. You say, well, if the bird carries it there and the seed is lucky enough to germinate and find light, it will grow wherever the bird drops it. So the ranges of these plants is another question to be worked out. You can look at the barren specimens and find out that someone named this hawthorn, this species up in New York, and lo and behold, it also turns up down in Kentucky, but it's given a different name, but it looks like it's the same hawthorn. It's because we had these botanists naming things the same hawthorn from different areas, but they're actually the same thing traveling around. The passenger pigeons, for example, probably had a lot to do with spreading <laughs> hawthorns in this country following, you know, the white man's uh, invasion or colonization. The hawthorn. Passenger pigeons fed on vast amounts of small fruits. Of course, they flew long distances, so they may have, they might be one chief disseminating agent that spread a lot of these hawthorns and gave them wider ranges than they otherwise would not have had. Um, wow. We've got several species of Southern Appalachians that are only known from the Northeast, and apparently birds have spread them down the mountain chain. We've also got some plain species that show up out of the country. So all this thing, you know, uh, hawthorns have been moved for many, many decades by wildlife. And trying to figure out which species are where is one of the big problems, particularly in conservation of these plants, because state agencies charged with conservation initiatives need to know how rare is this? Does this species deserve a ranking of rarity? And if so, there's a formula developed, you know, how many individuals per population, how many population. <laughs> and I frequently ask that questions. I say, well, you know, I don't know. You know, the herbarium specimens may be the data that's needed to answer these questions, but the herbarium specimens are spread all over, and each herbarium would have to be visited and these things ferreted out because they're under all kinds of different names and so, yes, it is kind of a mess trying to figure out what are really rare species of hawthorns because the the database is still incomplete on where they are were from, where they are, how many there are, and so forth. But whether they originated by hybrid events or not, uh, a lot of it we just don't know about these plants. We can identify them as a hawthorn, but the species takes a bit of work, and it takes generally looking at the plants in flower and in fruit. Most of these flower in the spring, they fruit in the fall. So to get a good identification, you really need to collect them or observe them closely in flower and again when the fruits mature. They'll give you a good clue as whether that plant has been previously described as a species or not and help with identification. Whew. You, sir, picked a fascinating topic to uh, pursue, and that, to me, is really important context. You have a plant doing very complex things reproductively, plants not behaving like animals do or as we expect animals to do, 
And then you add in the context of history and what's happened on this continent over the last couple of centuries. And, and yeah, it just kind of seems like this perfect storm for a lot of things to come on board and disappear. And you mentioned, you know, singular barium specimens representing an individual that could be gone. You could see where a clearing for a colony became a town, became a city. And yes, yeah, that clearing harbored a few species that might have mixed. You can just make up all these different kind of routes in your head to why all this confusion happens, but we know it's here and, and it's important that we start to kind of chip away at it. But, you know, the conservation thing really does come to mind because, you know, you've come up actually in, in recent conversations with people like West Knapp where we start talking about these rare endemics, these single site endemics or or extinct in the wild plants. And, and Critigus has at least one representative that tells that sort of story, right? Right. There are certainly rare taxa of critigus in every state in the east and what makes them rare you know of course they're hard to find um <laughs> or they're known from an old herbarium specimen and no one knows where they are anymore in the wild and truly a lot of these have disappeared i mean I, for years i worked on some of the rare critigus in the south and it took a lot of searching to find some of them and now if i you know for example, I've gone back and looked at some of the old uh, populations that I found you know, 10, 20 years ago, and they're not there anymore. So mm. what was rare then is even more rare now. As, because primarily grazing is one thing. You know, talk about you know when the big land clearing took place and opened all as much as country up for early successional plants to thrive. You know, well that era has come and gone. Now, of course, they've grown back up. Of course, and the development of roads and cities doesn't have that much bearing on critigus because mm. that actually improves their habitat whenever a forest edge is created or brushland. Uh, one thing that is changed in the last, in my lifetime that I've noticed is the disappearance of grazing, cattle grazing, horse, whatever. Uh, a lot of people had farms, you know, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and the free, you know, fenced in or free range grazing of cattle and mountain pastures and elsewhere actually benefited these some of these early successional plants like Critigus because they ate competitors. You know, they kept the ground open. They would eat the Japanese honeysuckle, the multiple rose, nibble at it. You know, the thorns deterred the cattle a little bit when the thorns hardened. Just like when Critigus, they would eat Critigus too, but when the thorns hardened. They wouldn't want to browse them anymore, like they do with a lot of spiny plants. So, a lot of cattle grazing actually helped Critigus thrive. People are not grazing cattle like they used to anymore in mountain pastures or out in the countryside. You know, it's all reverting to other uses. The cows are disappearing, and these old fields are growing up. You know, they're growing up in invasive exotic shrubbery, autumn olive, and bittersweet, and all kinds of other, or just native trees. And the hawthorns, of course, disappear. That's why I've been seeing a lot in the south, and just you know, these rare plants. I mentioned hawthorns in the south. You know, most of the places we found populations that appeared to be stable and good uh, areas for these rare hawthorns were in old grazelands. Now the grazelands have been abandoned. It's all growing up. These things are gone. So land use changes really does a wrecking job on Critigus diversity and disbursement because they're they're somewhat transient you know they'll travel around take advantage of early successional habitats with the help of birds but where there's proliferation of things like red cedar which transmit disease rust diseases which hurt hawthorn recruitment that increases that drives the hawthorn diversity way down or eliminates it uh, the reversion of fields and brushlands the forest drives them out um, so it's not the development that really hurt plants as much as just uh, the uh, changes of an early successional habitat to something else that mm. you get rid of uh, they're easy to maintain as long as they have sunlight they'll bloom and fruit heavily but when they get overtopped and shady you know, they won't last very long they'll die out there are a few species that live in the understory of swamp forests and things, uh, but um, for the most part, most of the species are kind of shade intolerant when they get older. You know, they don't thrive, they don't produce much fruit unless they have access to sunlight. 
So in the standpoint of conservation, yeah, it's trying to find these rare endemic species from certain region. You can find them, but in order to conserve them, that's a good question. You bring them into gardens, what's called an uh, ex situ situation where you're growing them artificially, giving them light and space they need to maintain that genetic integrity if there is such thing and if it's a species. <laughs> you manipulate the environment. And manipulating the environment for critigus usually means you gotta disturb the regrowth in some way. Put the cows back or burn it or mow it or something. These days we have so much of a problem with invasive exotics that you know it, that's the main fight now. It's not fighting back a few pine trees or cedars. Now we've got all these invasive plants that really smother out something like a hawthorn. So. Yeah, big time. And you know, you mentioned growing these things in ex situ collections and your experience as a nurseryman and growing these plants, I think it's an exciting sort of combination. You're also, you're doing conservation, but it, it, it really can help you understand plants better, especially when you consider a group that can be this hard to tease out. Uh, you know, do you really think growing these plants helps you notice more of the sort of quote unquote behavioral differences, the developmental differences that can help you understand a difficult group like this a little bit better? Oh yeah, certainly does. I mean, uh, I think that might be one of the problems of strict botany without the use of horticulture interjected. You know, if you just look at the dried plant specimens in herbarium only, and you only look at them natural, and you don't deal with the trying to propagate and grow, you learn a lot of things trying to grow plants that you didn't think was present. And with Critigus, after growing these for many, many years, I've been collecting seeds in the wild and growing. You know, you see which ones are probably apomictic because all the seedlings come up virtually identical, hmm. look just like the mother plant. Uh, that was one of the arguments that Charles Sargent made in the Arnold Arboretum early on in his critigus work. He named over 700 different critigus, uh, the most prolific critigus namer we had in the country. But uh, he was really resistant against considering that they were hybrids. And his, one of his arguments was when he grew them in the Arboretum, they all came up just like the parents. So that was proof that there were species. Of course, he didn't know, no one back then knew about apomictic plants cloning themselves with seeds. But growing these things myself over the years, you know, I have rarely come up with any new novelties in, you know, collecting the massive seed in the wild, grow them up. Most of them do look like the parents. Obviously, a lot of them are apomictic or self-fertile some way. Occasionally you see something that doesn't quite match, you know, surprise it. Well, that's, I know that seed came from this plant. Why does it look different? And let it grow up and you, I'll say, well, aha, it's got another species involved in it, you know. So the pollen was swapping pollen, obviously. But growing the plants in the nurseries afforded a lot of decisions made on which species are probably more valid assigned, valid name than others. You know, some of these little local variations, hawthorns that don't reproduce well, probably just local hybrid events. And just like a lot of them in the past, they grow up and flourish for a while. Unless the bird plants them somewhere else, they're going to disappear forever. But a lot of the things I've grown in the nursery over the years have contributed greatly to my understanding of which really deserves to be a species not there's a rare species, for example, called Lanuginosa that's endemic to Missouri, which is a form of Carlton Pigus mollus down in Alto. Hmm. It has kind of wide leaves, very thorny, kind of bushy thing. It was collected from one site in Missouri, uh, Sergeant Palmer years ago, and it's kind of disappeared now. It's not been known in the wild for a long time, only for these old herbarium mounts. But Carl Sargent did take that species in Arnold Arboretum so it was for a while living there and I got some sign wood cuttings from the Arnold Arboretum years ago which I grafted onto some rootstock in North Carolina and grew them all and they do appear different than the normal mollusks but are they different enough to warrant a species name I'm not convinced so trying to grow them from seed the seed don't have high germinative capacity so 
either the seed are no good or it's very poorly pollinated. It's not very apomictic. So something's going on with that oddball contiguous. And in the past, someone found it, thought it looked different, but it's disappeared. It's probably completely died out. Uh, found similar things in Arkansas. Taxa that were named, they're completely gone now. Go to Habitat and look, and they're nowhere to be found. They probably were just local anomalies that popped up, but not being you know, a true species, they weren't reproducing well, those things are going to disappear. And so do we concern ourselves with that type of conservation effort to try to find these local rarities that probably are no longer extant or focus on the more wide-ranging ones that are becoming more rare because of habitat changes? You know? So I often give advice to folks working in the conservation field. Yeah, these old species and old names are a concern because they, the people have to deal with them. But if they only exist with a herbarium specimen 100 years old, uh, you know, they're probably not worth the extra effort to spend time with unless someone turns them up in another location. So that did happen with one species in Tennessee called the Harvest in Hawthorne many years ago. We searched for seven years for that thing around Nashville, Tennessee. <clears throat> found a couple of plants. One promptly died after we found it in the wild. It, and uh, we grafted it, and it's produced hundreds of seeds now. It's an apomictic tetrapod hawthorn. But we thought there was only one left in the wild that we knew of for many years until someone found some in northwest Tennessee on some Lust Hills near the Mississippi River. And there was a population of, who knows, you know, a dozen, two dozen more plants, but they're reproducing a bit there, so it's in better shape there. So it's not a Nashville endemic. It turned out the birds probably carried it elsewhere and got it established. So that rare species became a little less concerned since it was discovered somewhere else. But in cases where there's only one place where the plants are known and they're not known from there anymore in 100 years, it's that well, you know, you're going to find some that are just no longer extant. They're just not here anymore. Growing them in a nursery gives you an opportunity to observe them, you know, are they producing viable seed or not? If they're not germinating well, something's wrong with the seed. You know, they may even lack a gene for inducing germination. That's found, but uh, certainly the large fruity ones. You know, the seed you dig them up two or three years in the soil, they still look like they should be viable, but they're not germinating. Maybe there's a gene that just keeps the embryo from germinating. You know, mm. a lot mm -hmm. of unanswered questions that. You can't tell by looking at them in the wild, but growing them in the, in the nursery trade uh, will reveal certain things. And I think it should be work done more often, but not many of us are doing that still. <laughs> growing <laughs> them in the Sure. But music to my ears, though. I'm a, I'm a firm believer that the literature is only half the battle. To know a plant, you really have to grow it, interact with it, see how it behaves through time and, and what comes out of reproductive grafting, that sort of stuff. So thank you for preaching that but you know this sounds like it's a genus ripe for opportunity lots of discoveries to be made lots of understanding lots of cultivation just people need to get involved with this so for those listening that like a bit of a challenge want to get out of uh you know the the sort of box so to speak and, and get into something like this how would you recommend the listener the average listener that wants to get into hawthorns where do they begin like what would be a good place to start to really get on that journey and and start to make their impact on this genus well good question you know how to proceed if i was trying to find for example sources of hawthorns um there's very few people are offering sources in terms of seeds buds or grafting material i mean it's kind of like a free-for-all you have to kind of start your own local project on these plants if you're interested in uh, on a local level find out what species are known from your area, see if you can find them. I mean, you're not going to find them in nurseries, probably. But uh, there's actually a uh, an internet-available source now called, well, CERNIC is the one we use in the south, Southeastern Regional uh, Network of S-E-R-N-E-C. <laughs> it's called CERNIC. Or it's um, a different herbaria of universities across the south 
have photographed their old mounts of Critigus, you can go online and Google Critigus and just see how many they got. Now, again, not all of them are identified correctly, but you can actually modify your search. If you're from, you know, Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, you can Google Critigus, Mecklenburg County. It'll give you all the Critigus that's ever been collected in the database for that county. You can do that. Other counties are all over the United you know, States. That probably is probably the best way to give you an idea of what's been collected in the past from one area. And then you can hit the books or the internet, try to find images of these and learn what they are. But if you want to grow them and find out which ones are best to grow um, for the area, that's going to take some legwork. Yeah, I tried to incorporate a lot of that southeastern information in that book I wrote. I did a horticultural section that listed all the taxa and their relative attributes horticulturally. But I don't really know where that information is contained for all the critiques in eastern north america um, you just have to do a lot of research on your own look at the herbarium specimens see which species been found where it's some of the more uh, either either the older books or the very new ones it seems like in between there's a period where all these hawthorns people want to ignore them they want to lump them into you know just a few species uh, the very old books that date back in the early 1900s sometimes have a lot more information on Critigus than the ones written between, say, 1960 through year 2000. Recently, there's been a resurgence in you know, uh, incorporating more valuable information in certain larger books. So, uh, that uh, Floral North America, if you want to go that route, that has all the taxa, you'll soon realize that. The lumpers and the splitters are still alive and well these days. You know, you know James Phipps is kind of a splitter. He has a lot more species there than I incorporate in my book. But the lumper is probably the enemy of person trying to understand Critigus because everything's the same species, which certainly is not. It doesn't behave that way. Uh, nurserymen are virtually you know, useless. I found <laughs> we're talking about Critigus. They just know they like the ones that don't have thorns. Like, Thornus Cruzgali and Winter King, uh, they just know the ones they deal with. So to really get a good handle on it, you have to do really some research and look up specialists, not just people writing a plant book. They're all their critiques are all the same, or they're, most of them look like this or this. Shoot for the specialist publications that really have if someone spent some legwork time trying to figure out what taxa are unique in an area. Or so, in growing these things, you know, that's another tough, tough thing. You know, you have to grow them from seed yourself. You're not going to find them in the trade very often. Sometimes if you see one in bloom that looks especially attractive in the spring, you know, keep track of where that is. Maybe tie a little flag or some kind of marker on it. Go back and collect the fruit of it in the fall. These things, uh, are comparatively easy to grow from seed, but you have to have patience. You can't expect like a bean or a corn. You put it in the ground and voila, it grows the first year. Sometimes the seed coat is so thick that the seed will lie in a seed bed or a container for two or even three years before they germinate. Wow. So don't give up on them. Try to keep them covered and moist. But some of them have a delayed germination. They all have to have usually chilling collect the seed in the fall, you take the seed out of the fruit, you mix it with some damp sand or peat moss or perlite or something, keep it in the refrigerator over the winter, plant it in the spring. It may come up that summer, it may lay over and will come up the next summer. But growing them from seed is requires patience, but once they germinate, you know, they grow fairly quickly. You know, I can get them, you can get them in flowering and fruiting age within five years once you, they start germinating. Uh, and uh, you can ask certain arboreta in your area, botanical gardens. I've noticed there's a little bit more interest last two or three decades than there were when I first started this, that botanical gardens that still have some critiques are interested in finding out or propagating them, promoting their use. So, so do visit your local botanical gardens and speak to any botanists or 
three horticultures you can find about where to find some of these. They might have them growing somewhere, and they're just not telling no one because they think the public's yeah. not interested. <laughs> but they might have a secret Hawthorne interest that if you ask them, they say, oh, yeah, we've got that. Can you want that? Okay. I'm certainly trying to spread them around myself. I have been for the last 20 years. I've sent seed and plants all over the over in Europe and everywhere. And uh, so occasionally I'll be surprised. I said, oh, there's there's something that almost looks recognizable. You know, I'm going to put one of those seeds I sent to them from Lowndes County, Alabama years ago. Nice to see these things pop up. Yeah. Well, that's excellent. I hope this conversation has inspired at least a few intrepid botany nuts to, to bite off their piece of this puzzle. Um, and, I, and I appreciate it. If they want to pick up a copy of your book or learn more about your work on hawthorns and other plants, uh, is there a source where they can go looking for those? Yes. Uh, actually, I have the world's supply. This book is not on Amazon, I wrote. I, it's self-published. But uh, I have an email that I use to answer Hawthorne questions. Uh, it's called Laura Montevega at gmail.com. Okay, that's this weird name. Laura Montevega means wandering over mountains, which I did a lot of you know, years ago. Laura, it's one word, F-L-O-R-A-M-O-N-T-I-V-A-G-A. Laura Montevega at gmail.com. And um, I'll sell these books to that website. I mean, it's not a website. It's just an email. And uh, I can answer questions, you know. And people can send me pictures. Sometimes I can come up with an answer quickly and sometimes not. But you know, how it is with critique is, you mm. know, it depends on the photographic skill as to whether the picture is, is focused enough to make a determination. But I'm happy to answer questions people might have about critiques and, and uh, whatever. I've been doing that for years, so no reason to quit now. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Ron, this has been an absolute pleasure. Very inspiring and, and really exciting stuff. I, I Again, I really hope we've inspired at least a few botany nuts out there to jump in on Critigus. But thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. I know you're a busy man. You got a lot of stuff going on, a lot of irons in the fire, but we appreciate all of the effort and all the work that you're doing. So thank you again. Well, thank you for having me. Of course. Well, hang in there and uh, happy botanizing. Uh, thank you. Cheers. All right. Amazing stuff. I can't thank Ron enough for all of the effort he's put into understanding Critigus, but also for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us. And I mean it. He's a very busy man. He's a hard person to nail down and schedule, but I'm happy we were able to do it and bring you this incredible conversation. Hawthorns, get into them. Give it a shot. Try to understand them better. They're an amazing and ecologically important group of trees, and they're just gorgeous. I can't sing their praises enough. And Ron has inspired me to try a little bit harder to understand them ever so slightly better. So thanks again, Ron. But that is it for this week. Once again, if you want to support the show and make sure the show has a future, consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants, or by picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers, all of which make great holiday gifts. Thank you all for listening. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, Hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.